Hello and welcome to a special Lancet podcast to launch the Malaria Elimination Series on Friday, October the 29th. I'm Richard Lane and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague Pam Daz to discuss the context to this series and some of the details and messages coming from it. Pam, first of all, some context here. It's very exciting that we're talking about malaria elimination. How has that concept come to be? A three-part strategy to eradicate malaria has been developed and is widely endorsed by the malaria community. The first part is aggressive control in highly endemic countries so that we can bring down transmission to low levels and mortality in countries that have the highest burden of disease and death. The second part of that strategy is progressive elimination of malaria from the endemic margins to shrink what is known as the malaria map, and I'll I'll talk about that in more detail as that's the subject of our series. And three, research into new drugs and vaccines and basically new tools that can reach all the at-risk populations. Part two of the strategy, which is elimination of malaria, is the major focus of this series. Partly that's because much effort and investment has been devoted to parts one and three part two has been relatively neglected. Although having said that, historically, elimination has been progressing from the endemic margins for the last 100 years, and it's continuing today. So it's not a new intervention or an ambitious new goal. Although having said that, in 2007, Bill and Melinda Gates stood up in Seattle and put rather provocatively, that the world should adopt a global goal of malaria eradication. Since then, momentum has built quickly to move beyond malaria control. However, it is a very controversial area. I mean, the malaria community is quite divided over whether such a global goal is possible. And I think what's interesting about this series is the timing. We put malaria elimination under the microscope and really look at... um, the challenges both operationally, technically and financially of how possible elimination is. Thanks, Pam. That's an excellent uh, overview. And just so I'm clear and and listeners are clear, in terms of definitions, Mm. we're talking about malaria elimination here, whereas Bill and Melinda Gates were proclaiming malaria eradication. This is what I think it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. (laughs) Eradication means wiping out malaria from the planet. That's the ultimate goal. Whereas malaria elimination actually means interrupting the transmission. That's correct. That's exactly right. So eradication, as you say, the permanent reduction to zero of the worldwide incidence of infection caused by the parasite. And elimination refers to a state in which interventions have interrupted endemic transmission and the risk of re-establishment is minimised. And this obviously requires continual commitment to maintain it. Again, something I'll come on to later. And then the alternative state is control. We, in this series, use the term controlled low endemic malaria, which is defined as where countries have reduced the malaria threat so that it's no longer a major public health burden, but where transmission would occur even in the absence of imported cases. Let's turn to the series now. It's a four-part series. Perhaps you could just walk us through giving us some of the highlights and, if you like, main messages coming out of each paper. The series consists of four papers. The first paper in the series places malaria elimination in a historical context and provides detailed information about present malaria eliminating countries and summarises the risks and benefits of elimination. The second paper is a modelling paper and it provides a scientific framework to quantify the relative feasibility of elimination from both an operational and a technical standpoint and then it ranks countries accordingly. 
So what this paper shows is that each country faces a unique set of challenges, which include intensity of endemic transmission, malaria importation rates, political instability, weak health systems, and the size and access to populations at risk. Now, all these factors considered, what this model ranking exercise shows is that malaria elimination from the countries in the Americas appears to be more feasible using the current tools and less feasible in sub-Saharan Africa. Paper 3 looks at some of the operational differences between elimination and control. So the current status at the moment is many countries are controlling malaria, some countries are embarking on elimination and some countries are eliminating. What Paper 3 does is compare the two stages of elimination and control, looking at their similarities and differences. The two stages are very similar in terms of the nature and magnitude of their risks, which are drug and insecticide resistance and drying up of long-term funding. However, operationally, while the consensus to arrive at controlled low endemic malaria is mainly universal coverage with prevention and treatment measures that includes insecticide-treated nets, drugs, um, spraying. Elimination is, is pretty much looks the same, but on top of that, it will need additional activities, including robust surveillance systems, responses of new tools to identify residual or resurgent foci of malaria and of course most importantly preventing importation of infections and that's going to include establishing cross-border initiatives across the entire region of countries. Thank you Pam that's that's important isn't it so if, if I understand you correctly that means therefore that in some regions I'm thinking particularly some countries of sub-Saharan Africa a strategy of control is going to be more appropriate than a strategy of elimination. Absolutely. I think in the in the endemic heartlands, such as sub-Saharan Africa, the case for control is much stronger. I mean, in, the, in some parts of sub-Saharan Africa, we can't even get basic drugs and insecticide-treated nets to people. Health systems are weak. There's no delivery mechanisms. So in these regions, pursuing an elimination goal will be too difficult to do at this time. And the biggest surprise in this series, though, came from the final paper, paper four, which is a financing analysis, which challenges the previously mooted view that elimination is financially attractive. What the authors do is carefully analyse the comparative costs of malaria elimination versus controlled low-endemic malaria through case studies in five areas of four countries and they show that the probability that elimination would be cost-saving over 50 years ranged from 0 to 42 percent depending on the country studied. So they conclude that financial savings shouldn't be a primary rationale for pursuing elimination and that malaria should be seen as a longer-term investment like immunisation and not as a quick win which is what most of the community have kind of assumed that that is what elimination would be. So I think one conclusion from this series is that elimination, though worthy, it's no easy task. It'll take a very long time and potentially could be more costly than control. However, the series also highlights that much more research and analysis is urgently needed to inform elimination decisions and implementation. And it's filling these evidence gaps which will be critical for determining the optimal conditions for the benefits of elimination to be realised. That leads nicely on, Pam, to some analysis in a comment written by yourself and Richard Horton, uh, editor of The Lancet, commenting on the series. And, and actually, a key issue here is leadership, isn't it? Because you've mentioned earlier how 
over the past few years, past three, four, five years, there's been a lot more energy and momentum and money going into malaria, which is great. But as can often be a problem, too many players on the pitch can be a bit confusing and it needs proper direction. So you pick that up in the comment, don't you? Absolutely. You're quite right. Yes, malaria has become a very trendy uh, area of um, interest, research and um, money. More importantly, I think um, over the years, as you say, because control efforts have been shown to bringing down the burden of disease in certain parts of the world, that there is a a well fueled optimism and with that obviously money has been a lot more forthcoming and then recently with the Gates announcement of eradication that's obviously mobilised a lot more momentum. It's true to say that the global malaria architecture is a pretty crowded playing field. There's the Rollback Malaria Initiative, WHO and their Global Malaria Action Plan and then obviously more recently we have the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB and malaria, the President's Malaria Initiative and groups such as the group we're working on in this series, the Malaria Elimination Group, MEG, and Malera, uh, a consultative initiative focusing on the research and development needs for malaria eradication. There's a lot of things going on, but overall leadership seems to be lacking. Our feeling is that WHO's place here should be more prominent. To date, we haven't yet seen that. As the call to action in the paper states, who has a an important role to play. It should be the convener of global health expertise and synthesise the strategies that are consistent with the best evidence worldwide, including the voices of national malaria control programmes and policy makers. Who needs to step up to the plate and take up a much stronger leadership role? Pam, many thanks indeed for what sounds like a really interesting series. Final question, do you think malaria eradication will ever happen? Oh gosh, that's a very hard question. Uh, I don't really want to put a number on it. And I think at this stage, it's early days in our progress with our efforts towards elimination, certainly, uh, let alone eradication. It will be a very complex picture. I think, obviously, there are areas, as I said, where control, there's a much stronger case for control, especially in the um, endemic heartlands, such as sub-Saharan Africa. But then, conversely, as um, Richard Featurem and colleagues have shown, that uh, shrinking of the malaria map has shown remarkable progress over the last 150 years, and countries are eliminating and they are successfully eliminating. So I think it will be a long process. Ultimately, though, it's it's going to be down to the tools that we have. And if we look at past eradication programmes, well, the only one that's that's been successful is obviously smallpox. And the bedrock of that success was having a vaccine. And so we feel that really, if malaria is going to be eradicated, we are going to need such a vaccine to be able to conquer the disease ultimately. And Pam, you've just mentioned Richard Feacham, who you profiled in the November the 6th issue of The Lancet, and we're about to hear some of the interview that formed that uh, profile in a minute. Can you just uh, introduce Richard Feacham, his title, uh, and uh, where he sort of sits within the malaria community? Well, Sir Richard Feacham is a professor of global health at the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF. And he heads, as well as founded, the Global Health Group at UCSF. And that group initially chose two initiatives, one on malaria elimination and one on health systems. And it's his work on malaria elimination that has created the authorship for this Lancet series. Let's now hear from Professor Richard Feacham talking to Pam earlier. You're the head of the Global Health Group at UCSF. Can you tell us how that came about and the research areas the group focuses on? Right, right. 
Well, when I left the Global Fund in, in 2007 and moved back to the University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, and, and Berkeley, I had in mind to form something that became the Global Health Group, which I imagined and still imagine as an action tank. That's a slightly tongue-in-cheek phrase, but it makes a point. We're, we're not a think tank. And the interesting thing about an action tank is that it moves from data through analysis, through policy formulation, through consensus building, through to a commitment to catalyze large-scale action in collaborating countries. So whereas a university would normally do the research, the analysis, publish, and move on, and a think tank would normally develop new policies, hold a press conference, publish a report, and move on. In the Global Health Group, we've tried to string that together from the data and analysis right through to the impact in uh, selected collaborating developing countries. And it's been very exciting. I think the bottom line is the model really works. It's, I think, new and, and useful and very stimulating. There were questions about whether a university is the right base for such a thing, and the answer has proved to be a resounding yes. It's a very popular thing on campus and with the University of California more broadly. And to make it work, you have to choose a very small number of areas to focus on. You, you can't run a model like that if you're spread across global health broadly. And we initially chose two, two focus areas and have since added a third. Two initial ones were malaria elimination, and we have our so-called malaria elimination initiative. And, of course, The Lancet is publishing a lot about that right now. The second one is the Health Systems Initiative, with a particular focus on an enhanced role for the private sector. And the third newer initiative we call E2PI, the Evidence to Policy Initiative, which is built on the idea that there is space for better digestion, analysis, summation of the evidence to lead to the better formulation of policy options to lead in turn to better decision making. So it's really bringing analysis and evidence to improve decision making in global health in a way that is done in weeks and months, but not in years. So it's not large set piece studies with a result coming out in two or three years time, but rather take a challenging problem that some organization is grappling with today or the board of the Global Fund is grappling with or some other decision-making body and within um, days, weeks, or months bring a new set of viewpoints and some clearly articulated policy options to those decision-makers in the belief that they will then be assisted to make better decisions. So that's just uh, that's about six months old, that uh, E2PI project, and is already having some impact. So we're pleased about that. So, so Richard, yes, you said one of the focus areas was on health systems in the Global Health Group, and particularly the impact and involvement of the private sector. You have a particular interest in that role and private sector in improving healthcare in the developing world. But more often than not, the private sector are blamed for the problems of the developing world and, and certainly don't always have the trust of global institutions such as WHO. I mean, I, I was at a TB meeting last week, which was, um, you know, it was a scientific technical meeting. But, um, you know, the private sector were not there and we a lot of us 
asked why they weren't there and and you know there was a sort of distrusting kind of communication across the group what what can be done to ad- address the problem well it's a fascinating question pam and, and and one that we're kind of in the thick of right now mm. if you if you look at the whole of africa 50% of all healthcare is provided by non-government providers let's call those private i.e. ngos churches for-profit organizations, everything that is not the government. Let's lump all that together and call it private. And it's about 50% of all healthcare provision in, in Africa. In Asia, private provision across Asia is about 70% of all provision. I mean, in India, it's 75 to 80%. In Cambodia, it's 90%. So across the world, the majority, and in some parts of the world, the great majority of healthcare is actually provided not by government structures, but by structures that are outside government. And, and yet, for decades, we've had the health system's discussion as if that reality didn't exist. We've, you know, we've worked with ministries of health to strengthen and boost the public part of the healthcare system. And in some of those conversations, we've behaved as if this large private thing that's going on out there just isn't there. And I think the the thing that we urgently need to do and collectively around the world I think we are beginning to do is to to harness, to conscript, to make use of private finance, private management skill, private entrepreneurship, private skills of all kinds to harness those to the achievement of public policy goals. This is not about saying to the private sector, sort of get on and do whatever you want to do. It's about saying to the private sector, how can you work with us, the government, to achieve public policy goals, which we, the government, have lamentably failed to achieve? I mean, we talk about market failure and private failure, and there's no shortage of that. But in healthcare, in the developing world and in the rest of the world, the public failure is massive. The proven inability of governments to deliver on their promises is, is just extremely large and striking. And it's time for governments to um, look out to all those non-governmental actors and say, how can you work with us? How can you help us? Not to make big profits for yourself, although if you're a for-profit organization, you'll need to make some profits for yourself. And even if you're a non-profit organization, you'll need to make a return on investment that you can plow back into the operation. But that's not the main, the main purpose. The main purpose is to help us, the government, achieve public policy goals on behalf of all citizens of our country. And those discussions are, in a way, 50 years too late, but nonetheless, good news, getting underway. And there, there are around the developing world some real pioneers, some really brave and innovative people on both the public and the private side who are pushing the envelope of public-private partnerships. And our focus at the Global Health Group in our Health Systems Initiative is very much on these public-private partnerships, long-term uh, collaborations between government and the private sector could be in finance or delivery of services or both, to achieve public policy goals and to bring better access and better quality to all citizens, including the poorest and most marginalized. And we have some very interesting models that we're evaluating. 
we've become aware of very interesting innovations that are going on out there. And interestingly, where we find an innovation, it's almost always nothing to do with what DFID has been advising or nothing to do with what WHO has been saying. It's a local innovation. It's local leadership, local innovation. We see this in Southern Africa. We see it in India. Uh, we see it in parts of Latin America. It is, it is locally driven innovation. And in some situations, it's been slowed down and impeded by the international agencies and by the kind of aid paraphernalia. Certainly, it hasn't been encouraged by the aid paraphernalia. And, and in some cases, it's been actually slowed down and impeded. And, and we've, we've, got to, we've got to move beyond that. We've got, we've got to recognize um, the excitement around these innovations. And we've got to collect a lot more evidence. We've got to evaluate. That's a big, uh, a big issue that the Global Health Group is focusing on, uh, rigorous evaluation of these innovations. And open up the discussion to a plurality of models where the private sector plays a role. So the next question, global health, well, extremely fashionable these days. I don't know any university that isn't doing global health, which, you know, 10 years ago was probably unheard of. But like any fashion, um, certain issues are in vogue one minute and then out the next. A good example perhaps this year certainly would be maternal and child health, which are the currently the darlings of, uh, of the global health movement. And, and, you know, some would say even malaria uh, in the last couple of years has received much more attention than before. But do you worry that interest will wane and the global community will move on to something else soon? Yes, I do worry. And I think... I think it's one of the major dysfunctions of, of the aid business. I mean, the aid business is, what, 50 years old. The multilateral and bilateral institutions came into being at the end of the colonial era. And I think one of the dysfunctions has been this move from one priority to the next priority, from one enthusiasm to the next enthusiasm. And we have not managed to commit to a few simple big tasks and stay with them as a really loyal and dependable partner for decades. And obviously these things take decades. Nor have we been good at um, not inserting our own views in front of the views of the recipients and the recipient countries. Um, in other words, we, we don't listen enough. We don't take enough time to really hear the priorities and policies of those we are trying to assist. We tend to dream up new enthusiasms, which may be very worthy ones. And, and you know, what could be more worthy than MDG 4 and 5? So one can't argue against it. But it is part of a pattern of us dreaming up enthusiasms and uh, rather than listening more systematically. And there is a, a danger, as has happened in the past, that the priorities will swing and change and developing countries will find uh, money in the future flowing for, for different things. And I do think as brings us back to the Global Fund discussion. I mean, one of the unique early visions of the Global Fund was the incredible emphasis on demand-drivenness, being demand-driven. So yes, the Global Fund is for AIDS, TB, and malaria, and that already narrows the agenda, and you can argue about the wisdom of that. But within AIDS, TB, and malaria, the door was completely open. It was basically Malawi asks for whatever Malawi wants to ask for. There are no rules. It is Malawi's ideas, Malawi's policies, and Malawi's sense of where the gaps are. And the Global Fund would not insert itself into that discussion, would never say, 
oh no, you should ask us for this, not for that, because we think we know better sitting in Geneva than you do sitting in La Longue. It was to try and get that out of the dialogue completely. And I think we can learn from that. And I think we can, with some ingenuity, move the aid business into much longer-term support mechanisms for policies and priorities that we have heard rather than that we have dreamt up. And that would be a fundamental shift. And I think it's very timely. And interestingly, the global financial crisis, I mean, no good crisis should go unwasted. And the global financial crisis is an opportunity to do some of this re-engineering because dollars will be very, very scarce. And each dollar has got to work harder. And we've got to make sure we're really spending them effectively. That's uh, very good points, Richard. You you raised there. So overall, in terms of, you know, frustrating or disappointing issues that you've had to tackle whilst in any of the many positions you've held, could you illuminate us on, on any of those, including any current ones that you're, you're up against? Well, I think um, always a hard question, because if, if you work in aid and development, you have huge stimulation, huge cause for, you know, optimism. And we've seen fantastic progress, which is always just so exciting and stirring. But then, you know, we have no shortage of, of, of frustrations and setbacks. I think, you know, I think looking over my career, I think the, the sort of the, the chronic frustration and disappointment that I have is it links back to this kind of how complacent the aid industry has been. There has been such little self-criticism. I think we haven't criticized ourselves enough. We haven't held ourselves to account. And we've kept on doing year after year after year in roughly the same way things that in many cases have patently been disappointing, where the return on investment has been modest at best. And I think we need an aid, an aid industry, an aid business, which is far more focused on on results, on accountability, as I've said, on listening, on demand-drivenness, on putting money behind the ideas of the leaders in the countries that we're seeking to assist. And those reforms and changes happen so slowly, and there is such a sort of chronic lack of awareness of how poorly we're doing when we are doing poorly. And for that culture to change would be a huge step in the right direction. So bringing us back to now, uh, you're leading a series in The Lancet on malaria elimination, which we are soon to publish. How do you hope the series will influence the global discourse around malaria elimination? Well, it's been a, a great undertaking working on the on the Lancet series. Of course, it it forces you to really organize and crystallize your ideas and make your arguments uh, cogently and mobilize the best evidence. So it's it's a great discipline. I think the uh, if we go back to October 2007, when Bill and Melinda Gates made their announcement in Seattle that they were setting their sights on nothing less than malaria eradication, I think one of the key things that's happened in the intervening period, um, which um, we've we've contributed to, um, is this enunciation of the three-part macro strategy from getting to where we are today to a malaria-free world in 2050 or 2060 or whenever it might be. It's certainly several decades away. And that strategy is part one, aggressive control in the heartland, part two, shrinking the malaria map by 
continuing the historical process of elimination from the endemic margins inwards, the subject that the Lancet series focuses on, and thirdly, research and development, because we need new and better tools and technologies. And having that enunciated and increasingly widely bought into is actually in itself very helpful. We can then say, well, look at those three parts of the strategy, the aggressive control, the shrinking the map, and the research and development. Let's look at those individually and ask, are they in good shape? Are they uh, healthy? Are they moving forward? Are they sufficiently financed and sufficiently attended to? And I think the answer to part one is yes, since 2002 and the birth of the Global Fund, huge efforts have been made in aggressive control in the heartland. There's a lot more to be done, no complacency, but it certainly has got and continues to get a lot of attention and quite rightly. Part three, research and developments, also during this decade, partly driven by the a big commitment of the Gates Foundation, uh, research and development on malaria has expanded substantially, and now the program called Malera is uh, bringing forward um, a more fully elaborated research agenda which can help focus the investments. But the second part, shrinking the malaria map, was clearly relatively neglected. It was the orphan piece of the three-part strategy. And it's the one we focused on. And in all our work and with our collaborators around the world, the hope is partly to contribute to the clarity of, of the global strategic thinking on how that part of the strategy fits in with the totality of the strategy. Secondly, to mobilize the best evidence on the on the thorny problems, and there's no shortage of thorny problems in malaria elimination, which the series spells out in some detail. Um, next, to help catalyze regional collaborations on elimination, because it's become so clear that multi-country regional cross-cutting work between and amongst countries is critical for elimination, and so we've helped to give birth to the Elimination 8 in Southern Africa and to APMEN, the Asia-Pacific Malaria Elimination Network in, in Asia. And I think they're proving very useful constructs for better regional collaboration and better cross-border collaboration in malaria. And lastly, at the country level, to say to the 32 eliminating countries, we care about your success. You are not forgotten. We are paying attention to you. You've, in some cases, achieved a lot, mainly with your own resources. And, you know, as, as you would request, uh, we, the international community, are here to help you on your journey to elimination, both financially, if you need it, but also technically in terms of research findings and sharing of information between countries. Um, we're, here to, we're here to assist and support to a degree that hasn't been the case in the past. And my hope is that the Lancet series can be further impetus on, on all of those fronts, the strategies, the evidence, the regional initiatives, and helping individual countries. Many thanks to Richard Feacham and particularly to my colleague Pam Daz for all her help for putting this Malaria series podcast together. Thanks for listening. See you next time.